Genesis 41. Where we want to be right at the end of Genesis 41. Well, uh, some of you older guys here at church may remember the panic that set in in our culture when the year 2000 was looming ahead and the whole Y2K virus and the thought that all the computers were going to break down and the world was going to end and everyone was in such a big hubbub about it. You can even, if you're interested, watch some of the news and media things that were going on at the time. And uh, people were genuinely saying, like, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, there was fears that planes would fall out of the skies, that the supply network will completely uh, collapse, and all of society would be rubbles by the end of it. And one particular guy named Norman Feller decided to go down into a well-prepared bunker and wait it out. Wait out the destruction that was dead set going to happen. In 2014... He emerged again from his bunker to a very, very different world. He spent 14 long years alone, by himself, having no idea what the, the surface world was like. And uh, the first thing I want to think of is, one, why didn't you bring a radio down? You could have, like, tuned into your local station, realized the whole world was good. Uh, you could have popped your head out for a second, going for a little expedition to see what things are going on, maybe like six months later, but he was so dead set the world was going to be over that he lasted until the, the last bit of food. He ate it and he's like, all right, this is it. I've got to go out and see what's happening. He comes out and it's 2014 and the world's looking pretty good. Everything was fine. Uh, there's been a lot of fears over the end of the world. Uh, one of the things is uh, doomsday preppers are wrong 99 out of 100 times. But then occasionally the one out of 100, something bad does indeed happen. The opposite of that coin is the person who lives day to day. They spend all their wage every week right down to the dot and they live on the nice edge of bankruptcy. The thought is that tomorrow will be exactly the same as yesterday and the day after that, the day after that, the day after that and nothing will affect me. There may be crises out there in the world but it won't come to me. Nothing bad can ever happen to me. Well, Today, we're going to see Joseph set forth an example to us of how we need to put our trust in the Lord. Not so much that we abandon our trust in the Lord so much that we jump down for 14 years in a bunker and weighed out whatever doomsday prediction has come next, or being so foolish that we never prepare for anything. Joseph helps us understand the middle ground and how we can trust in the Lord without uh, making preparation our entire personality or uh, thinking that God can't get us through any hardship. So I've got three points that I want to share with you guys. The first one is the times of blessing. My second point is the times of fruitfulness. And my third point is the times of need. So my first point, the times of blessing. Let's get into it. Verse 41 of Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. You guys remember last week how we saw Joseph being transformed from a lowly prisoner, a slave, 
into one of the most powerful men in the world, the Prime Minister of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh has recognized that there's amazing qualities within this young man, and he has set him apart to help Egypt ride out this coming storm. And along with the title and job description, Pharaoh is going to confer upon Joseph many different honors and benefits. He starts by placing on Joseph's hand a signet ring, which is the signet ring of Pharaoh. This was the identifying marker of Pharaoh's authority. Whenever you have a, a document, what we do now is we sign the document, and that shows that it's got our pledge of approval. Back in the day, they get a little uh, hot bit of wax or a hot bit of uh, uh, pottery, and you push the symbol in the signet ring into it. And that would symbolize that it has the authority of the one who wears the ring. In this case, it's Pharaoh. So Joseph has the authority of Pharaoh, and he can do whatever Pharaoh can do. He was clothed in garments of fine linen. And where previously he had a chain of iron around his ankles, he now has a chain of gold around his neck. This was, in effect, making Joseph out to be a prince, the son of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is basically adopting Joseph. He is making Joseph into his son. He has received honor as if from his father. And we remember so long ago, it almost seems like for Joseph, it was a dream when he was in his father's house and his father conferred upon him the honor of the robe of many colors. Remember that? All that long ago. And here is Joseph now being clothed in much finer clothing than before. We see that there's a certain quality about Joseph that makes him desirable. People, people take note when they see Joseph. They see he's a wise uh, young man. They see he is handsome in appearance. Remember from a couple of uh, weeks ago, he's diligent, he's got humility, and he's got respect towards people, and it causes people to notice him. He is well noticed and well admired by the people around him. God made everything that Joseph did flourish, whether he was a slave in Potiphar's household or the object of Potiphar's wife's desires, or as a pseudo-prison warden, and yet through all his hardship and humiliation, Joseph finally will receive immense blessing. He has finally come out the other side, and he's going to see a blessing that was beyond anyone's imagination at this time. He was brought from a slave to virtually adopted by Pharaoh. He is a royal member of the household of Egypt. He rides in a chariot next to Pharaoh. This is like... You know, imagine the president and his convoy with all the black SUVs. This is a this is a signal of authority. This is a signal of royalty. And he's given a new name, Zaphnath Paneah, which loosely in Egyptian means savior of the world. Imagine getting that as your title. Changing your name to that. You'd very quickly get a big head, wouldn't you? There's a marriage arranged for Joseph. He's going to be married to the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, this woman named Asana. This is very interesting. Well, firstly, we have many records of a, name, a man named Potiphera. It was a very common name in Egypt, and we, of course, would recognize Potiphar as his previous ruler. It was a, a very common name, but he was a priest of On. This is a priest of a pagan deity. This was a very different world. And it's not just that Joseph has now married a pagan woman. He has married the daughter of a pagan priest. You know that the religion runs uh, strong in their veins. Their practices and their uh, rites and rituals and all the things run strong in this daughter's vein. 
He's provided with a new identity. He has a new name, a new family, and a new wife. Daughter of a pagan priest. What do we make of this? Because at one minute, we're like, yes, Joseph, we're so glad to see you're finally risen up. You've finally given the respect you deserve. You're finally given the position that you've earned through your humility. And yet at the same time, we're like, ooh, I don't know if I like that blessing. You get a new name? Egyptian name? You get a pagan woman? We've already seen all throughout the book of Genesis how these marriages have just not ended up going well. Well, it's important to remember that at this stage, the sons of Abraham were only warned not to marry Canaanite women. And Joseph's mother, Rachel, you will remember, even though she was not a uh, sorry, she was not a Canaanite, she was a pagan. She stole her father Laban's household gods. Do you remember that when she was sitting on them on the camel? Kind of an interesting story, we won't go into that one, but as far as it was revealed to Joseph, this kind of marriage was not prohibited by God. It would actually come much later under the law of Moses that you were not to marry women outside of the faith. But this doesn't let Joseph off the hook, because he's a wise man. And he marries Asenath, and it's not going to be smooth sailing for him into the future. On the flip side, if he said no, he said, I'm not going to marry her, he said, this isn't going to work, that would have been a serious slight to Pharaoh. That would have been a way that for him to completely undo everything that has just happened. And so Joseph's stuck in an interesting predicament. And he's estranged from his father's house. He's devoid of any godly fellowship. He's surrounded by pagan men and women for 13 long years. And despite all these setbacks, he has remained true to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Put yourself in Joseph's position for a second. Imagine you were dragged away from the people of God, placed in a foreign land where no one worships God. For 13 years, you were a slave and in prison. How would your walk with God be? Would you come out strong? Or is that a scary thought? Well, Joseph comes out strong. Which is amazing. He doesn't become an Egyptian. He has a new Egyptian name, a new Egyptian wife. He now rules the land of Egypt, but he never becomes an Egyptian. He remains true to his God. That's my second point. The times for fruitfulness. Second point, verse 46, let's read. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the servant service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. But we see Joseph acting quickly. The seven years of plenty have finally come, 
and you need to start preparing now. He goes from town to town collecting a fifth of all the produce and storing them up. He collected so much grain that it became impossible to measure it all. It was an impressive harvest that they were getting in. It was one that was working out well in Joseph's favor. He was purchasing and storing up this food, and he was ensuring that the nation of Egypt would survive. They would make it through. This would have been a full-time gig, probably requiring a considerable amount of management and administration skills. However, we remember, this is Joseph's bread and butter. This is where he developed all his giftings and talents. When he uh, ruled the household of Potiphar, and he ruled the court jail, God had prepared Joseph for this very moment. And it's a reminder to us that God prepares us as well for the moments that he calls us to. And rather than complaining about the situations that we're in, we should be asking ourselves, what kind of person is God making us into? Because we will be vindicated when the time of need comes. And during this time, while the land was being fruitful, we see, so was Joseph. He was also being fruitful. He had two sons before the famine hit. And the text is very quickly to remind us that he had these two sons with Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. It repeats it again just to kind of let us know, hey guys, this is with this woman that he is having these children. And he names them Manasseh and Ephraim. And if you were tempted to think that his new name and his new wife would distract him from following God, you'd be wrong because he does not raise his sons as Egyptians and he does not even name them with Egyptian names. He names them with Hebrew names. He names them both in recognition of the grace that God has shown to him in the land of Egypt. These names are very important. The first name, Manasseh, sounds like the Hebrew for making to forget. And we would be thinking, what is going on here? Because at the end he says he's forgotten all his father's house. And I think, what, you've forgotten them entirely? They're not important? They don't matter to you? What's going on there? And that's not what Joseph means by that. He hasn't forgotten his family, or even the love he has for his father, but rather the amazing grace that God has shown to Joseph has caused him to forget his hardships and misery. He has spent 13 long years, and the only thing that he wants to do is go home. The only thing that he wants to do is return to his land. And he's saying that now, because of everything that's happened, that's been forgotten. He has a new life. He has a new home. He has his new purpose given to him by God. He may never return to his father's house, but he is content and joyful for what he has. The next son... Ephraim sounds like the Hebrew word for making fruitful. It's a very interesting phrase. He says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Egypt was a strange place, a hard place, a place of misery. For so long, as I said, he wanted to go home. He just wanted to see his father and mother again, but God in his mercy has turned the land of his affliction into his new home. And this is the way that God operates. In our places of hardship and suffering are the very places that God intends to make us fruitful. When Christians are trying to discern God's will, you guys probably have done this many times, should I get this job or should I get this job? Should I buy a house here or should I buy a house there? Should I marry this person or should I marry this person? Should I study this degree or should I study that degree? Or whatever it is, whatever will that you are trying to discern, we often think the right answer is the one with the least amount of suffering. We think that the right answer is the one with the least amount of hardship. 
So when you're talking to someone, you say, oh, I really want to get that, I want to do this degree, but this, you know, this degree might actually work out a bit more because, you know, this degree is going to be a lot harder, so maybe God wants me to take this, or God wants me to buy this because this will be a lot easier. That's not necessarily how God works. In fact, it's very rare that God will weigh up an equation for you and let you walk the path of the greatest amount of ease. That's not how God works. It might actually be that God wants you to choose the option with the most hardship. And other times, you don't even have a choice about the circumstances you're in. Things just might be happening to you, and you don't have any control. But it does not mean you're outside of God's will. It's important to remember that God is not the God of comfort, although he comforts us. He's not the God of ease, although he does our paths. He's not the God of laziness, though he does lay our heads down to rest. He's the God of all. He's the one who turns evil into good, hardship into joy, barrenness into fruitfulness, slavery into freedom. Joseph recognizes this truth when he named his sons. He was not bitter. He was not angry, but he rejoiced in God. He is all the more committed to following God in this foreign land for all that he suffered. He may have a pagan wife, but these two sons have Hebrew names. And these two sons are being raised as Hebrews and not Egyptians. They will be raised up in the Lord. Our situations will never be perfect. You may find yourself in a hard situation. You may find yourself in the past making foolish decisions that have led you to you being in a tough position. Or maybe these bad things have just happened. God doesn't call you to solve everything. He calls for you to be faithful and fruitful and wait for his blessings to come. And when you live like this, you will be wise like Joseph. And you'll be ready for any hardship. And you will prepare for your times of need. This is my third point. The times of need. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, this section reminds us that these things came to pass as Joseph had said. His interpretation proved to be true. If anyone doubted him, they did no longer, as the whole of the Middle East was plunged into a serious famine. The rains that would normally fall on the Ethiopian highlands didn't fall. The Nile didn't swell. And the land was plunged into a famine. As a country like us in Australia, we know how devastating droughts can be to a country and how much it can really destroy a country. But we don't recognize here in Australia just how bad this was and how devastating this was and how much this would have just wiped whole civilizations off the map had not Joseph prepared for this very moment. 
if God had not revealed this, the human race would have had a massive setback. They're, sure, there would have been survivors. A small minority would have made it through. But the whole world was in the grip of one of the worst disasters we have ever seen. But by God's grace, they were warned. Joseph had followed through and grain was available. Egypt still had bread. As the famine began to take hold and people realized that this wasn't going to let up, they started coming in droves to Joseph to get bread. In fact, they came to Pharaoh first and he says, you guys better go over to Joseph. And it's his job to facilitate the administration of the grain. This is a good lesson for us because we ought to gather up in the good times because we are never promised more good times. In fact, bad times always happen. It's a natural flow of human history. And over-reliance on things staying the same can come back to bite us later. Proverbs 10.5 He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Joseph begins to sell grain to the people. And now you can imagine the grain would probably get very expensive. This is you know, classic supply and demand. There is a very limited supply of grain and a very great demand for it. And so you'd imagine the prices of grain would just skyrocket. It would go straight through the roof and all the poor people would be out on the street. No hope of making it through this famine. And that would have been the case, except Joseph was in control of this. And he fixed the price. And he kept the price capable to sell to everyone. Because someone could have come in and bought all the grain off him if it was at a cheap price. But that's not what he did. He apportioned, we find out later, apportioned two people. Grain, the grain that they needed. He did it in such a way that he was trying to enact justice. In Proverbs 11.26, we see that people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Now, it's a classic thing. You know, uh, when the pandemic first came in, uh, everyone was scrambling to buy hand sanitizer. And so there were a couple of guys, I think they were from Melbourne, that went around to all the stores, and you know what they did? They bought up all the hand sanitizer so that they could corner the market and then when everyone is desperate to get their hands on hand sanitizer, they could sell it at a much higher price. All they had to do was just hold on to it for a little bit until there's a crisis and then you sell it to everyone. And this is exactly what you could do in this moment. You could hold it back, just hold it back, keep holding it back until we get more and more desperate until the need to survive. You just have to sell everything and you just become filthy rich, owning everything, growing in a monopoly. Joseph does not do that. He makes it affordable and accessible to everyone, and interestingly, including foreigners. He sells to all. Genesis tells us that all the earth was coming to Joseph to buy grain, which, considering the movement of people at the time, may not have been much of an overstatement. At the very least, it would have been all the people groups that was known to them at the time. Foreigners, traders began flooding into the country, and Joseph, unknown to him, was going to be on a collision course with his family and his dreams that he'd received so long ago. That is for another look, of course. But these are all part of God's sovereign plan. And God works all things together for his good, the good of those who love him. Joseph was living up to his new Egyptian name, the saviour of the world. You can't help but see some parallels between Joseph and Jesus, right? 
There are just so many parallels between these two men. Apart from God's grace, many thousands, perhaps even millions, would have died in this terrible famine, but Joseph would give them bread from the earth. Fascinating. A bit later, when the uh, Israelites were about to starve in the desert, what happened then? Moses brought down bread from heaven. But then Jesus comes along. Both of these men gave bread to stop you from starving to death. But everyone who bought Joseph's grain, where are they? They died anyway. The grain they bought prolonged their life for a bit longer, but it did not keep them alive. The manna that fell in the desert, it was gathered up by the Israelites. They ate it, but they are dead. It did not last into eternity. But Jesus in John 6.35 describes himself this way. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How good is that? Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a foreshadow of the Messiah who was to come. But this Messiah wouldn't deliver us from starvation. This Messiah would deliver us from our greatest needs, sin and death. We are all hungering after something, and we are never satisfied. We are all thirsting after something, but we are never being quenched. God provides abundantly for us in Jesus, whether in plenty or in famine, abundance or drought, because in Christ, the most potent enemy, the most powerful enemy, is death. Because what good will it do to you if you have bread, and yet you still die? If you have water, and you still die? But in Jesus, death is no sting. It has no sway. It will not destroy everything. It will not have the final say. In Christ, we can have eternal life, but it's if we go to Him. It's not enough for all the people in the world to know that there is bread in Egypt. That knowledge doesn't save them. That knowledge doesn't change their life. If they want to be changed, if they want to live, if they want that bread, they have to make the trip to Egypt. They have to meet Joseph. And they have to accept the gift that he gives. And that is the same with Christ. It's not enough to know that he is the Savior of the world. It's not enough to know that he is good. It's not enough to know that he can save. It, you have to actually come to him and be saved. You actually have to partake from him. You have to eat his uh, body and drink his blood. There is no other name. There is no other food or drink that will last into eternity other than Christ. You have to come to him. No one else has gathered the grain, no one else will provide, and no one else will rescue except the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is not an overstatement to say that Christ is all we need. God so graciously provided for you in Christ, then it is a small matter for him to provide for your everyday needs. If he gave you the bread of life, then trust him to provide for your daily bread. God knows what you need, what you need, and he is not stingy. So what does that mean for us? You have to describe humanity. You can describe humanity in many different ways. One of the ways is just anxious toil. Chasing after the wind. 
chasing after things that we know will never last and things we know will never satisfy. Because we're chasing the wrong things. It's only in God that we can find the satisfaction we're looking for. We be so anxious, preparing for future hardship that we forget to trust in God. We can be so uncertain about our future or our family or our relationships that our fears and indecision paralyze us with fear. We're stuck in anxious toil. But if there's anything you learn today, let it be this, that God is trustworthy, that he is faithful, that he will not let his people grow hungry if you come to him. He will not leave you in the grave. His grace is abundant. When the famines come, Trust that God provides abundantly for Christ Jesus. But in hardship, famine, and toil, whatever it is that you're facing, God loves you, that God will provide, and that He alone is trustworthy and uncertain well. Because Egypt could not save itself, God saved Egypt through His servant Joseph. And you could not save yourself, God saved you through His servant Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. That although Joseph gave bread from the earth and Moses gave bread from heaven, Lord, you give us the only bread that will last into eternity, and that is your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that as we read books like Genesis and we see characters like Joseph, we see that although these stories are great and though these stories are God-breathed and and Inspired by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we know that they speak to something greater, and that greater thing is your Son, Jesus. Lord, he is the center of all human history. He is the most important person who ever lived. And Lord, he is the only one who will rescue us from sin and death. And so, Father, I pray that many here who may not know him, I pray that they would flee to your Son, Jesus, today, that they would run to him, that they would uh, love him above all else, that they would go to him to satisfy their needs, and that they would no longer look for the things that will not provide, but look to the things that will last into eternity. I pray for those Christians here who are uh, trapped in anxiety and toil, trapped in all sorts of things that are causing them to take their eyes off you, Lord, and to look to their situations and to look to uh, solutions that do not arise from you, Lord, and I pray that they would repent of that, that they would fall on their knees, ask for your forgiveness, and turn back to simple faith in your Son, Jesus. For we know that only He can provide for our needs. Father, we love you for all that you have done. Bring us afresh today a new respect and knowledge of your gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.